Good morning, Redemption Arcadia. Thank, thank you for those of you that are here in attendance and those of you that are watching online. We're so glad that you've uh, joined us today. And happy Father's Day to you. Yeah? A couple of you are excited about Father's Day. <laughs> I'm thankful for our Heavenly Father. Let's stand and we'll worship Him this morning. Thanking the Lord for being a good Father to us. Oh, I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like, but I've heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night, and you tell me that you're pleased and that I'm never alone. You're a good. To you are 
God, we do love you. We adore you. We praise you for being a good father. God, even now in, in such a strange and difficult time, we are thankful that you are still good. We praise you as such. God, thank you for the blessing that it is to be able to gather together. We pray that you be glorified in this time and that we would grow to be closer to you and more like you. That by your word and your spirit, you would transform us into a people uh, that would be your church, your body and would be pleasing to you. Would you be glorified in all these things in the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you, friends. Uh, would you remain standing as the word of the Lord is read? Hi, Arcadia, we're the Murray, we're the Murray family. family. Today's reading is Psalm 23, so please open your Bibles there and feel free to stand for the reading of God's word. Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me like down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I look through the petty of his center or staff, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You will and you stuff. Prepare a table for me in presence of my enemies. You know I head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> all right, you may be seated. And uh, the bad news is that you have now experienced the best part of the morning, so... Uh, good morning, I'm Frank Switzer, I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, some of you, <clears throat> this is your, uh, your most fervent dream come true. I am preaching with my mouth covered. That's just, <laughs> you've wanted this for years, now you're getting it. And uh, I've also noticed, I don't know if you've noticed, maybe you've experienced this too, I'm, I'm getting the strangest tan lines I've ever had in my life now too. That's very strange. Anyway, uh, we're in Psalm 23, We've. this is our fifth week in Psalm 23, our last week, and we're looking at the last two verses. Uh, but before we get there, I just wanted to, I wanted to, it, just another reminder of the difficult times that we're in. I wanted to read this to you, uh, just to help us, hopefully. Uh, this is Psalm 66, verses 10 through 12. Uh, the psalmist writes these words, For you, O God, have tested us. 
have tried us as silver is tried. Have you felt tested and tried lately? Anybody feeling that way? You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet, you have brought us out to a place of abundance. This is a I think a helpful reminder, and these reminders are throughout the Psalms. So uh, if you're not reading the Psalms these days, it, it might be a good place to, to be. But it's a reminder that our tribulation and our suffering is not the end of the story. And although we don't feel like we've been brought out, and in fact, in some respects, I think that um, we still have a very long road ahead of us. Uh, it's a reminder that God is good and that he is always with us through any endeavor, whether that endeavor is frustrating and challenging, the tribulation, or whether it's enjoyable, and we should remember that. Uh, so this series, like I said, this is the last week of Psalm 23. Uh, we spent four weeks in the first four verses talking about God as shepherd, and today uh, we look at uh, God as our host. Uh, and we're going to just simply go line by line verses 5 and 6, and then we're going to end with a discussion of the house of the Lord uh, forever. So the first part of verse 5, what would be considered 5a, David writes, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This is God as our host. The interesting thing, though, about the, the word host is that in their context, it actually has two different meanings. And both of these meanings will apply here. So for those of you who are English majors, you would call this maybe a double entendre. So this, this word host plays out on two levels. Here's the first level. A host, and we can identify with this. This is the one that we're most familiar with. A host invites people. A host prepares tables. It's a host such as when you host a dinner party or, or some event or a function or maybe, maybe you're an Airbnb host or maybe you've had the pleasure of hosting a Zoom meeting. That's, that's being a host. You're, you're, you're kind of in charge. And there are certain protocols for that kind of a host. And so here, God is the one inviting us to dwell with him forever in his house with all of the peace and joy and protection and provision that comes with him being our host. And that's important. But there's a second way that he is a host. And this, is, um, this language is more in their context and a little bit more of a biblical understanding of what a host does as well. He is doing this, notice, he's preparing this table in the presence of our enemies. He prepares the table in the presence of our enemies in the presence of Satan, in the presence of sin, in the presence of death. And the fact that he does that reminds me that he is also our army. And another word for army in their context is host. God, look in the Old Testament, you see over and over, God is described as the Lord of hosts. He is the one that leads the armies. And so, he is also our host in the sense that he is our army, he's our protector, he's our defender. So he invites us, but it's also, uh, it's also the fact that he's going to fight for us as well. 
Also, think of the first part of this verse in this way. In a sense, the shepherding imagery continues. It's not that the shepherding imagery ends with verse 4, but it continues into verse 5. A shepherd is always going to feed his sheep. A shepherd, in a sense, prepares a table for the sheep to eat all the time, and he feeds them well. So the shepherd also prepares the table. And the shepherd always, always is feeding his sheep while the enemy is watching. Understand that even though you can't see, a shepherd can't see the enemy of the sheep, the shepherd knows that the enemy is always watching. The enemy is there. We need to remember that our enemies, the enemy, is always watching us. Even though we don't see him, even though we don't feel like our enemy is there, he's always watching. And the enemy is always looking for an opening. The enemy is always looking for a way to try to get in and to destroy us. Peter tells us that our enemy is prowling around. And that, that word that he uses, prowling around, reminds us that the enemy isn't, isn't making himself obvious. He's sneaking around. He's watching us all the time, even though we don't see them. And, and a shepherd knows that about the flock of sheep. They know that their enemies are always watching. And so, yes, God prepares this banquet for us in a way that lets us know and lets the enemy know that the enemy can't win. It is, in a sense, uh, there is this sense that God is preparing this table before the enemies almost as a way of spiritually trash-talking to the enemies. You're not going to be able to win. I can do whatever I want. And as long as I'm around, you can't do anything to stop me. The shepherd protects and provides and defends, as does the host. Now, just let me stop there. That is one half of one verse of this psalm. Isn't it amazing how much teaching and depth and imagery and understanding there is in God's word when you really begin to break it down and understand it? It's, it's amazing. And then the second half of, of, of verse 5. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So anoint. Let's talk a little bit about anointing. Uh, anointing is something that any good host in their context must do for his or her guest. It was part of the host protocol to anoint the, the guest head with oil. It's a sign of welcoming and honor. If you walk, if you walk into an invite, if you're an invited guest to a dinner party and the host doesn't anoint your head with oil, it's as though the host is saying, you're not welcomed and you're not honored by, by forgetting to do that. So David is saying that God does this for his people. It's God welcoming and honoring us, the sinners. That's an amazing thing. And when I think about this idea of anointing, it's, it's impossible for me to see this one little line in this psalm and not think, about Luke chapter 7, the whole idea of anointing with oil. So you move to the New Testament and you think about that story in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is invited to a dinner party at a professional religious person's house, a Pharisee's house. He's invited, and while he's at the party, by the way, Jesus apparently walks into this party and the host doesn't even acknowledge him, even though Jesus was invited, and he sits down. And, and as he's at the party... 
a woman who is known in their community to be a sinner. She's a, she's a bad woman. She shows up at the party, and she walks in, and she brings a flask of oily perfume. Uh, according to the scholars, this oily perfume of hers was probably worth quite a bit of money, and in fact was probably her portfolio. It was her 401k. This is how they prepared for the future. They, they didn't have uh, investment firms. They had to find assets that were not perishable, and this is how they had security, financial security for the future. So it's her portfolio. And what does she do with her portfolio? With all of her financial security, she pours it on Jesus, and as she's doing that, she cries and washes his feet with tears and kisses his feet. So this Pharisee, this host sees this happening and is appalled. She's a woman of ill repute. How could Jesus, this rabbi and supposedly this prophet, allow this woman to do this to him? How could she allow this woman to touch him and to be so close to him? But the woman knows that for all of her work, for all of her trying, for all of her oppression, and for all of her sin, she knows that her salvation lies in one place, and that is in this person of Jesus Christ. And so that's who she comes to. But the, but the Pharisee is just really bent. And Jesus knows that he's bent. And so he calls him out. And he talks to this professional religious person all about how he doesn't understand forgiveness, and so he's probably never going to be forgiven because he doesn't understand forgiveness and he doesn't know how to forgive. And then Jesus chastises the Pharisee for his lack of protocol as a host. He calls him out on this. And here's the protocol. As a host, in their context, when you invite somebody over for a dinner party, you were supposed to give the guest a kiss of welcome and friendship. You were to clean the guest's feet. Remember, the feet were constantly dirty in that context because of the dirt roads and everything. So you always had a... Um, big bowl of water that you would clean the person's feet with, and then you would anoint the guest with oil. So a welcoming kiss, clean their feet, anoint the guest with oil. The Pharisee did none of these things for Jesus. He invites Jesus, and yet he doesn't do any of it. It's a major faux pas on the part of this professional religious person. And so Jesus points it out. He says, you were supposed to do this for me, but you didn't. Yet, this woman who came and crashed your party, she does all three of those things for me. She cleans my feet with her tears, she anoints me with her perfume, and she has not stopped kissing my feet since she got here. This points out uh, the second half of Psalm 23.5 and this story in Luke 7 points out that Christianity is not about religion, it is about a person. Christianity is not about a religion, it's about a person, and it's about a relationship with that person. And this psalm tells us plainly, God is our host, and he loves us unconditionally. And, and what God does with us through Jesus Christ is he washes us, he kisses us, he anoints us, and God even cries tears over us. That's what he's doing for all of us. This woman does this to Jesus and we need to understand the picture of God also doing that for us, his people. And then the psalmist talks about this cup. You know, my cup runneth over, my 
cup is overflowing. Uh, understand, there are two kinds of cups. And David would have known this. There's two kinds of cups. First of all, there's the cup of wrath that God has for sin. The cup of wrath that God has for sin. This is not the cup that you and I want overflowing on us. This is the cup that Jesus specifically asked his father to remove from him the night that before he was crucified. But at the end of the prayer, he says, but not my will, but your will. But that's the cup that Jesus wanted removed. He didn't want to take that cup of wrath, but he did. The second kind of cup is the cup of God's salvation, provision, and shalom. So the other cup is this cup of salvation from an eternity separated from God, a cup of provision of his love, wisdom, and mercy, and a cup of shalom. And yes, that word is translated peace, but it's more than just peace. It's not peace because you're absent uh, tumultuous circumstances. It's a peace in the midst of anything, and it's a place where everything is exactly as it should be. And some people call this shalom. They, they've renamed it the holy harmony. It's not, it's not the absence of trouble. It's the presence of God. That's what shalom is. So salvation, provision, and shalom. shalom. This is the cup God desires to give to everyone, but not everyone's going to have. Not everyone wants God as their shepherd and their host. Unfortunately, most people are convinced that being their own shepherd and their own host is best for them, and that's tragic. It's probably our greatest blind spot as human beings. And that's why God must work in our lives for us to actually see the truth and to be given faith. He's got to do something in our lives because it's not something that we can do on our own. But here's the good news. This is the, the good news. This is the gospel. God gave Jesus the cup of wrath so that we could have Jesus' cup of salvation. That's, that's the trade-off. And we benefit from that. We get his cup of provision, shalom, and salvation. And the cup of wrath overflowed on Jesus because of our sin, and yet he took it. And he took it willingly cup of salvation, provision, and shalom overflows on us because of God's grace and love. And then we move to the last verse, verse 6. David writes, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. As people who know God, people who believe in Jesus, people who are, should be, at least, pursuing his holiness, we're told that goodness and mercy will follow us. Those two, good, those two words, goodness and mercy, Goodness is the Hebrew word tov. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 1 where God at the end of each day of creation declares that what he's created is good. But it's also a word that insinuates restoration. All of us could use some restoration. Amen. Can you mutter a little amen behind those masks? Okay. And that word mercy is the Greek word hesed. It's that word mercy, if, if your translations have mercy, um, most translators would argue it's better to understand it as steadfast love or loving kindness. Steadfast love or loving kindness. God's love is always there. God's love never fails. And then David says that those two things shall follow me. Literally, in the Hebrew, it's those things will pursue me aggressively and with purpose. 
His mercy, his love, his goodness will pursue me aggressively and with purpose. That's the notion of the hound of heaven, God. But here's the question again, and it's a legitimate question because verse 4 tells us that we're going to go through these valleys, the valley of the shadow of death. We're going to have these valleys that we don't particularly care for in our lives, valleys of suffering, valleys of challenge, valleys of tribulation. So how is that good and loving and merciful? Again, this is, I would argue, basic biblical theology that we see over and over as we read and study God's word. God gave us paradise originally in, in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. That's what he gave us. But in chapter 3, we chose to rebel in sin, which corrupted his good creation. And so now we live with challenges and trials and suffering, and yet God still loves us in the midst of that and desires to be in a relationship with us and has provided for our redemption through Jesus. But in the meantime, we're also going to have to live in this fallen temporal world. God has achieved ultimate and eternal victory over our enemy, but there is still this war that we're battling and fighting now and here. You can read a little bit more about how to prepare for that war in Ephesians chapter 6, the second half of Ephesians chapter 6. But God promises to be with us as we go through these battles. It's, here you go. I, I thought a lot about this. Um, it's, it's kind of funny to me, like not funny haha, but funny ironic. Okay. It seems as though every great story, now just think about the books you read and the movies you like to watch. It seems as though every great story, every powerful book, every amazing seminar or conference is all about overcoming adversity, overcoming challenges and danger, and overcoming hardship. In our culture, that's what sells. Look on your social media platforms. This person was here, but then through their strength and power and wisdom and intelligence and, and persistence, they end up here and were inspired by those stories. You and, I, you and I have never been inspired or moved by a story of someone telling us how they've never had to overcome anything in their life and that their life has been easy and problem-free. Not interested in that story. And in fact, I would ask, where is that story? Okay, well, first, it doesn't exist. And second, if it did exist, nobody would want it. But the minute we begin to talk about how God is with us through our adversity, our challenges, and our suffering. And that there is great purpose in our adversity and our challenges and sufferings. Well, you know the response to that. Well, well that's not fair. Why shouldn't it be hard? God must be capricious. He's not a benevolent being. He's a malevolent being. And then we hear... Those accusatory statements that always seem to begin with these words. Why would a supposedly loving God allow so much suffering? Why would a supposedly loving God allow this to happen? Why would it, if God is so strong and God is so powerful, why? So culturally, it is acceptable to talk about challenges and pain and adversity and hardship in the context of the self-help motif. We can do that all day long. We can talk about challenges as long as it's self-help. But we can't talk about it ever if it's part of God's plan for our life. If it's somehow for our good that God is doing this. When I finally came to Jesus, when I was 27 years old, 
this was actually the, this was the one thing that closed the deal for me. This. It's the Bible's honesty about how things really are. It's the fact that God's word is always unapologetic about the fact that there is wickedness and corruption in this world and how all of us must face adversity and tribulation and suffering whether we believe God or not. It's the reality and honesty of God's word that finally captured me. It was, it was reading God's word and looking at the world and saying, that's actually an accurate description of this world and what's going on in this world. God's word is truth with love, but without the sugar. It's exactly the opposite of what our, all of our world's gurus tell us. You know, we, they tell us that we have limitless potential and that we can do anything if we just put our hearts and our minds to it. We're going to solve every problem and eliminate all suffering, and if you can conceive it and believe it, you can achieve it, and that utopia is within our grasp, and we can do it. We've been saying that for centuries now. Well, that stuff sells books and conference seats, but frankly, it's a bunch of scubala. And if you don't know what the word scubala means, it is the biblical word for excrement. And you can look it up in Philippians chapter 3. It's in the Bible. God is with us. And when we turn to him through Jesus Christ, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's what David said. There is the consummation of everything. There is God's promise to us. There's our hope. And although David's, in David's context, he's referring to the temple in Jerusalem. In his historical context, he's talking about the temple in Jerusalem when he writes House of the Lord. And by the way, that temple is a place where many people were denied entry. Understand that. Not everybody was welcome into that temple. We'll talk a little bit about but what he's telling us is that we have entry. But it also, on another level, points to the eternal restoration of the Garden of Eden, of, of paradise in the day of the Lord, which is coming in Revelation 21 and 22. So when David says we'll dwell in the house of the Lord for eternity, there's two levels there. It's, it's, it's the temple of God, but it's the eternal temple of God in the New Jerusalem. There's not going to be a temple in the New Jerusalem because the New Jerusalem is the temple. So this thought about the house of the Lord, the temple, it got me thinking about how to end this series in, in Psalm 23. So what I'm going to do to end it is I'm going to talk about something that I think is very basic and simple and yet it's deeply profound for us. One of the prohibitions for getting into the temple in Jerusalem in David's day and even up until uh, whenever there's a temple there, one of the prohibitions was if you were unclean. Are you familiar with that word within their context? You're unclean. You could not go into the temple if you were unclean. Well, how were you made unclean? There are myriad ways that you could be unclean and not fit to go into the temple, and it would take a long time to fully explain, but here are just some of the ways that you could be restricted from the temple because you were unclean. If you had recently come in contact with anything that was dead, if you were bleeding, if you had some sort of disease or even an apparent disease, if you had discoloration of or a blemish on your skin. There's things in the book of Leviticus that talks about how your skin is supposed to look or you might be unclean. 
Certainly lepers were not allowed into the temple. They were unclean. Certainly if you were immoral, you were unclean. If you were a sinner, if you weren't keeping the law. And of course, Gentiles were unclean in their own way (laughs) because they were Gentiles. And so they were allowed into the outer court of the temple, but never past the outer court. And if you were unclean, you were not only prohibited from the temple, but you also had to keep your distance from others, and others would shun you if you were unclean. You were an outcast if you were unclean. And sometimes you would be unclean for days, sometimes for weeks, sometimes for months. Sometimes you could be unclean for life. For life, you're barred from going into the temple. Now think about Jesus. Jesus is by far the cleanest person who ever lived. He's perfectly clean. Perfectly clean. And yet the, per- the cleanest person to ever live, Jesus, he never distanced himself from the unclean. Isn't that amazing? He never shunned the unclean. In fact, he pursued them. He ran them down. He went after them. Not to wag his finger in their face, but because he wanted to restore them and forgive them and redeem them. He moved toward them and engaged them and touched them and loved them. And remarkably, Jesus did not become unclean as a result of his contact with the unclean, but rather the unclean became clean because of their contact with Jesus. The reason for that is because clean is the way things were originally created. Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Clean is the way things were originally supposed to be. Jesus is not an interruption to the fallen world. Sin is the interruption to paradise. Jesus is the restoration. He's not an interruption. Jürgen Moltmann, who's a great Bible scholar, argues that the miracles in the gospel are not an interruption to the natural order, but rather a restoration of the natural order. When Jesus heals or cleanses, he's giving us a foretaste of what that second coming restoration will be, and it's not some quirky sideshow of magic. So to dwell in the house of the Lord forever means coming to Jesus, repenting of our sin, and embracing the salvation of Jesus, his cross and his resurrection. So the question I have for everybody, including those of you who are uh, watching on the live stream, is have you come to Jesus? This is a call for you to come to Jesus. This is where life is. This is where redemption is. This is where restoration is. This is where goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we're grateful that you have sent your son to be our savior. And God, that he did the work that we could not do, that the one who was clean willingly made himself unclean so that we could be clean, that we are worthy in your sight, That for some reason you have deemed it that we are worthy of honor and dignity and restoration and redemption. And God, we thank you for that great gift. And now as we 
Celebrate that by coming to your table and by singing together. Pray that you would bless us as we do that and that you would be given all the glory. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you would take your uh, individually styled and prepared communion, remember there's this very thin layer on the top that opens up to give you the wafer. It's that transparent layer. Um, and then you eat the wafer and then underneath that you pull off the thicker, uh, beautiful violet colored, purple colored fluorescent uh, foil in order to get to the, to the juice. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he's having dinner with his best friends, even though he's going to be betrayed by one of them. And during the dinner, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And that was something new, but they were enthralled. And then after they had done that, he, he took the cup. He said, this is the new covenant of my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sin. Do this in remembrance of me. And he instituted this Lord's Supper. And, and Paul tells us later that as long as we eat this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So take and eat and drink as we're led in our last song today. I sing beneath the shadow of your wings. Better is one day in your courts, better is one day in your house, better is one day in your courts, and thousands elsewhere. Thousands elsewhere.
stand and we'll sing better is one day better is one day in your courts better is one day in your house better is one day in your courts and thousands elsewhere better is one day in your courts better is one day in your house better is one benediction for today comes out of Jude, the book of Jude. Please receive this benediction. It says this, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Go and live all of life all for Jesus.